Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. It is Wednesday. Uh, April 21st, episode 60. Yeah, we've done 60 of these. Can you believe it? Uh, it's been it's been a great ride, a fun ride. I can't wait to do 60 more. How are you this morning, David? I'm doing okay. I uh, slept pretty good. I had a Bobo's Oat Bar for breakfast, and I don't like to talk bad about Colorado companies, but Bobo's Oat Bars, they may be expensive, but they're dry. <laughs> but they're filling. They're good. They're nutritious. They're, they're a Boulder company, and uh, I like them. I think in defense of Bobo's Oat Bars also, I like the original. You can never find the original. The last two times I've had them, they've been extraordinarily dry. They were the coconut and the chocolate chip. And they have a million flavors, and they never have original, and original's the best. So I just feel like maybe they have too many skews. They should just focus on making original. Well, a lot of that has happened, by the way, if... If they're listening, that has happened to a lot of businesses. Uh, when they broaden their their product variety and their SKUs, uh, they realize that they've gone too broad, too thin, uh, and they need to focus and go after a market and uh, and look at their core competency. And it actually, like you say, that original bar, maybe two others, uh, and uh, different sizes. They do have different different uh, sizes, but you're absolutely right. Maybe they should. Uh, uh, narrow, narrow their scope a little bit. Yeah, well, I think also there's this make-work philosophy that goes on. I think it happens a lot in software, too, where they'll push an update to your favorite program, and it's like, this is not as user-friendly as it was. Oh, we added these features to your your program that you have to use all the time. Now you don't know where anything is. And it's like, why did they do that? Well, I think they have a team of engineers that are on the feature-adding team, and they... They do it because they can. They don't ever stop to ask whether they should do it because they should. I think that, ha- <laughs> that happens right, a lot right. in business. And not just software. I mean, everything, you know. Well, I, you're absolutely right because uh, that's exactly what happens. And uh, so you get people who can do it, like the software engineers or the designers. They can do it. And so in their creativity, they say, how many things can we do? We can do this, 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 and this. Oh, can we? Yes, let's do it. Okay, we did, 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 it. And then obviously you implement it. You never really think, how is the user going to look at this? You don't think of the user side. No. The user's perspective. Uh, and say, yeah, we have all these features. And then you try to market the features without really thinking, do the users want the features? Yeah. And honestly, on a resume... You can say, oh, I, we identified 17 new features. We brought them from the testing server to the development server to the production server. Um, we deployed them to over 100,000 users uh, with minimal bugs because we worked out all the kinks before you know, launch or whatever, before we released the software. That looks better on a resume than saying, well, we were the design team and we decided that a design was good. So we wanted to make sure nothing broke. So we didn't develop any new features for you know, two or three years. We sat on our thumbs and just sort of made sure that what we had worked because it was working for us. Uh, I mean, there's, like you say, where you stand depends on where you sit. A lot of the times you want to push out new features so you can point to those as your accomplishment. That's your work unit. Mm-hmm. And the the new features, they're more for you than they are for the end user. Very true. That's true. 
And when you think of the end user, you think, what are they going to use it for? What What is the, there's going to usually more than one use and say, well, what are the uses? And so you don't, you don't look at all the possible uses. You look at the uses and then you say, okay, you can create your constructs. Okay, these constructs, these features can go, can can address those uses. These can address those and, and reduce them down to maybe uh, two, maybe three, at the most four. I say two is a optimal, three is, is okay. Uh, here are the three different applications. And then the features can be embedded in there to where they are there, access them if you want to, but you don't have to. Mm -hmm. uh, there you go. Now, shout out to all the all the businesses out there. That's pretty much how, uh, how you would approach these things. You don't do things, like you said, Dave, you don't do things because you can, you do them because you should. And how do you know you should? Uh, do the users really want them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the devil's in the details. And there's, it's understandable why you would do that, though. Like, do the users really want it? Or do you really want to get a better job? You're going to produce features because that's what you can point to. You know, if you're a junior sure. developer and you want to be a senior developer at a company that pays more money, you say, oh, I developed and implemented 15 features. Here they are. You know, you can see them to this day. Um, so where you stand does depend on where you sit. And they say, oh, this person's a real go-getter. They'll develop features that nobody wants, and they'll get them in the software. <laughs> um, but that's not what we're talking about today, correct? Correct. We have a long uh, article from Foreign Affairs. Shout out to Foreign Affairs. May-June 2021 issue is now available. Uh, we are subscribers to Foreign Affairs, even though we read this digitally just for the purpose of making it look better on the podcast, so we don't have our heads buried in a magazine. Um, globalization's coming age, why crisis ends in connection. Um, that's today's article by Harold James. If we, oh, wait, what happened? You can usually click into the guy's name. Harold James is a professor of history and international affairs at Princeton University and the author of the forthcoming book, The War of Words, a Glossary of Globalization. So globalization was a big topic when I was studying political science in the early 2000s, prior to the 2008 financial crisis. I do think the 2008 financial crisis shaped views about globalization that had repercussions that may have led to a decidedly anti-globalist president being elected in 2016, um, despite not getting the most votes. And then that, obviously, that president was humiliated and got walloped in the last election. But um, so I think that, you know, Biden is more of a globalist than Trump. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. And we see this sort of pushback against globalization. But this guy, I think his argument, just judging by the title, is going to be uh, globalization's coming whether we like it or not. Does that seem reasonable? Yes, and I, I have not read the article, but I assume, and, and you can judge this, David, I assume that uh, Harold James' approach is not a political approach. It's not about who's president. It, it's about the whoever is president, the decisions they may be making, the direction we're going, and uh, what is in the future for globalization. Uh, and um, 
and uh, what what connections are there? So he's looking at it from an academic or historical standpoint. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yes, I have read the article. And not only is it about who's president, but it's about multiple world leaders and how, you know, you see European resistance to globalization. And that's reflected in the leaders that they selected at the time and the policies that they chose and advocated for. So it's not just America. Every country has to deal with how interconnected will we be? How self-sufficient should we try to be? And then the leaders that they choose sort of come from that gut instinct, because I wouldn't really call it a strategy. You know, it's like something's wrong here. You know, there's a financial crisis across the globe. We need to sort of pull back from this globalization that we've embraced throughout the 90s and the 2000s. Um, and then you see the end result of that and how the United States selects its leaders. Uh, but I think that he doesn't just take that one event, because he does mention that event, but he's looking at it from a historical perspective. So you get centuries of how have we traditionally engaged with each other across the globe? These are the precipitating events that we've seen. And uh, yeah, he does a good job. So should we get into it? Sure, sure. You well, actually, actually, you know history better than I do. I love history, but you know it better than I do. And I think when you look at the different uh, nations uh, in our history, in the uh, more industrialized nations uh, or more advanced nations as far as militar militarily advanced nations of you know, a couple of centuries ago, uh, they did have connections. Mm -hmm. They tried to connect with they tried to connect with each other. Of course, the connections was 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 with a handful or just a few of the major powers. But today, the connections globally, uh, everyone has a part to play. Uh, even the third world countries, and uh, I, I'm I'm anxious to see what he has to say. Okay, do you want to go first, or should I read first? Whatever you want. Um, I'll read. Go? I'll read first. Okay. Okay. So here we are reading from the article: "Globalization's Coming Age: Why Crisis Ends in Connection" by Harold James. The thought that trade and globalization might make a comeback in the 2020s, picking up renewed vigor after the pandemic, may seem far-fetched. After all. COVID-19 is fragmenting the world, destroying multilateralism, and disrupting complex cross-border supply chains. The virus looks like it's completing the work of the 2008 financial crisis. The Great Recession produced more trade protectionism, forced governments to question globalization, increased hostility to migration, and for the first time in over four decades, ushered in a sustained period in which global trade grew more slowly than global production. Even then, however, there was no complete reversal or deglobalization. Rather, there was an uncertain, sputtering slobalization. In contrast, today's vaccine nationalism is rapidly driving China, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States into open confrontation and sowing bitter conflict within the EU. It is all too easy to extrapolate and see the future of nobalization, globalization vanishing in a viral haze. Over the past two centuries, the course of trade and globalization has been shaped by how governments and people have responded to such crises. Globalization comes in cycles. Periods of increasing integration are followed by shocks, crises, and destructive backlashes. After the Great Depression, the world slid into autarky, nationalism, authoritarianism, zero-sum thinking, and ultimately, war. 
a series of events often presented as a grim parable of the consequences of globalization's reversal. Yet, history shows that many crises produce more rather than less globalization. Challenges can generate new creative energy, better communication, and a greater willingness to learn from effective solutions adopted elsewhere. Governments often realize that their ability to competently deliver services to their population's demand requires answers found abroad. Modern globalization, for instance, began as a response to social and financial catastrophes in the 1840s. The most recent wave of globalization followed scarring economic disruptions in the 1970s. In both cases, shocks laid the foundation for new international connections and solutions. The volume of world trade surged dramatically. The truth is that historic ruptures often generate and accelerate new global links. COVID-19 is no exception. After the pandemic, globalization will come roaring back. Wow. I see, I see what you mean. Uh, I need some help, David, here. Okay. Uh, back in the uh, very first paragraph, mm -hmm. what does he mean by globalization and nobilization? So uh, from it's just globalization but slow, and nobilization is no globalization. No globalization. Yeah. Where it's like, we didn't have, after the financial crisis, we didn't have no globalization. Globalization continued. We continued to become more integrated. We just did it at a much slower pace than we did prior to 2008. Okay. Um, but then the, in the next paragraph, it says, after the Great Depression, the world slid into autarky. 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 What is that? That's... Um, Rule of one group, uh, authoritarianism, basically. Uh, let's oh. let's let's get the exact definition. Autarky is authoritarianism. As well, as you look it up, just keep going down. Autarky, nationalism, authoritarianism, zero sum thinking, and ultimately war. Oh, uh, just define those. Autarky is no authoritarianism is different than autarky. Autarky is economic independence or self sufficiency. So. Oh. Like uh, a return to normalcy. We're going to start isolationism again after World War One, And we sort of pursued an isolationist forum, I guess. But it's an economic self-sufficiency. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's almost explicitly not globalization. So, you know, you have this interconnected economies and you say, no, that's the cause of our problems. We need to be self-sufficient. So you sort of sever ties with your trading partners, um, and you try to sort of produce all the raw materials, works in progress, and finished goods of an economy on your own. But then those others, nationalism, authoritarianism, zero-sum thinking, all those are just different perspectives of autarky. Because uh, when you be try to become self-sufficient, then you become very national, very mm -hmm. authoritarian. Uh, zero-sum thinking, uh, we will win only if you lose. And then finally war. I mean, these, yeah. these words, America first, um, storm the Capitol, only I can solve these problems, you know, I'm going to sort of badmouth our alliances. We saw a lot of this in the last four years. The only True. one we didn't see out of this list was, was war. Although we saw the beginnings of war on mm -hmm. January 6th. Yeah, it's true. 
We saw aggression. Not war, aggression. So Okay, well that's very interesting opening. Wow. But he does say these crises are a point where more globalization occurs. Right? That's and, that's that's the lead that he's he's promoting. And also, interestingly enough, he, he opens with in contrast to just slowing uh, in that first paragraph, today's vaccine nationalism is rapidly driving China, Russia, and the United Kingdom, United States into open confrontation mm-hmm. in sowing bitter conflict. I think, I think, I, I assume that's his thesis. He's going to be developing that idea. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. Okay. But he's also saying wow. this crisis is going to be an inflection point where more globalization comes as a result, not less. Yeah. Um, and, and, and does it talk about the cause? Like why globalization more, not less? Because it's it's a natural outcry. It's a natural uh, uh, pro- progression of uh, the COVID. It's accelerated it. No, I, I think he says, you know, crises. Uh, you want to sort of pull back into yourself and, you know, vaccine nationalism or whatever. But he's, I, his I think his argument in the end is take a look at New Zealand, take a look at the UK, take a look at the EU, take a look at the African nations in the US, take a look at China. They've all taken different approaches and not one approach is right, but every country has certain uh, methodologies towards the approach that is superior to other countries. So it's like like crises like COVID-19 would spur globalization because you can learn from how other people handle crises. Because you might handle one thing like the vaccine rollout right, but you might handle another thing like, I don't know, not having anti-mask protests in front of your state capital because you think it's a freedom issue. You might not handle that as well. Hey, you're muted. Because every country is different, every society is different, and it's going to be handled differently. But a lot of maybe, we, but they all have something to offer. You know, it's sort right. of like you get best practices when you face a crisis. I think that's one of the things that he's about to say. That sounds cool. That sounds good. Shall we first time around here? Sure. Yeah, the next section is the first time around. The 1840s were a disaster. Crops failed. People went hungry. Disease spread, and financial markets collapsed. The best-known catastrophe was the Irish potato famine, which began in 1845 and led to the deaths of nearly one million people. Whoops. Uh, Mostly from diseases caused by malnutrition. The same weather that made potatoes vulnerable to fungal rot also led to widespread crop failures and famine across Europe. In the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels articulated how global integration was driving the world towards social and political upheaval. The development of modern industry, they argued, cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which the bourgeois bourgeois, uh, produces and appropriates products. I knew the word. I'd never seen it spelled out. <laughs> <laughs> Europe was a tinderbox. In 1848, it ignited in an inferno of nationalist revolution with populations rising up in France, Italy, and Central Europe. 
but the economic shock of the 1840s did not reverse the course of global integration. Instead, trade expanded, governments reduced tariff barriers, capital mobility surged, and people moved across continents. Migration was not only a response to social and political uh, immiseration, it also reflected the promise of new prosperity. Historians now think of the second half of the 19th century as the first age of globalization. Food shortages, high, food shortages highlighted the need for broad and diversified supply chains, and leaders realized that a modern state needed reliable access to supplies from beyond its borders. In the United Kingdom, the British government initially responded to the Irish famine by importing corn from outside Europe. At this time, the economist argued that except Russia, Egypt, and the United States, there are no countries in the world able to spare any quantity of grain worthy of mention. Imports, however, failed catastrophically. This was in part because the new food was unfamiliar, but above all, it was because London couldn't work out how to pay for the goods. Trade deficits generated currency shortages, which pushed up interest rates in the United Kingdom and France. This intensified a manufacturing crisis, itself the result of a decline in purchasing power caused by surging food prices. Although the best solution was to sell more goods abroad, that would have required governments to lower trade barriers and open up their markets. These shortages generated popular demands for more competent governments. Although it was only in 1981 that The Economist Amartya Sen's pioneering work on the 1943 Great Bengal, uh, Bengal uh, Famine definitively showed that famines are often man-made, that intuition was already widely shared in the 1840s. John Mitchell, an Irish nationalist who immigrated to the United States, concluded, no sack of Magdeburg, Magdeburg or ravage of the Palatinate ever approached in horror to desolate to the slaughters done in Ireland by mere official red tape and stationery, stationery and the principles of political economy. Sorry for mispronouncing those things. Uh, governments everywhere eventually responded to these demands. That meant learning from successful efforts elsewhere. The United Kingdom enacted a series of civil service reforms, adopting a competitive examination process in place of arcane patronage. The most striking extension of state capacity, however, occurred across the English Channel, where Louis Napoleon, uh, the nephew of the emperor, was uh, elected president of France in 1848. After a coup and a series of plebiscites, plebiscites advertising his, his competence and activism, Napoleon uh, made himself president for life and eventually emperor. Napoleon III, his, policy, his policies were designed to show the benefits of an efficient autocrat over divided liberal regimes. He initiated large-scale public work projects, including railroad expansions and Baron Haussmann's famous rebuilding of Paris. Napoleon also demonstrated his competence uh, by negotiating the Anglo-French Tariff Agreement of 1860, which reduced duties on important important goods traded across the channel. Other countries quickly followed suit and negotiated bilateral trade deals of their own across Europe. 
But even before 1860, improved communication and transportation meant commerce was surging. Global trade in goods accounted for just 4.5% of output in 1846, but shot up to 8.9% in 1860. The events of the 1840s also laid the foundation for a wave of institutional changes to address the proliferation of small states with a limited ability to deal with migration. The creation of new nation states with novel currencies and banking systems, notably Germany and Italy, and administrative reform in the Habsburg Empire, ending internal customs duties and serf labor, were all designed to push economic growth. In this context, the American Civil War and the Meiji Restoration in Japan were also nation-building efforts meant to maximize the effectiveness and capacity of institutions. The abolition of slavery in the United States and feudalism in Japan were profound social and economic transformations. Both upheavals, upheavals moreover, led to monetary and banking reforms. Business competence was also newly in demand. In 1851, the United Kingdom celebrated its industrial strength with the Great Exhibition, an international fair intended to display British in, ingenu, what's that word? Ingenious, ingenuity <laughs> and mechanical superiority, as well as the virtu virtues of peaceful commerce. Some of the most stunning products, however, were neither British nor particular peace, particularly peaceful among them. The steel cannon invented by a German, Alfred Krupp, and the revolver developed by an American, Samuel Colt. British observers saw continental Europeans catching up and overtaking their own country. To the British scientist Lyon Playfair, the exhibition showed very clearly and distinctly that the rate of industrial advance of many European nations, even of those who were obviously in our rear, was at a greater rate than our own. He went on. In a long race, the fastest sailing ship will win, even though they are far for a time behind. The event taught world leaders a powerful lesson. International trade was vital for enhancing national performance. Competition was central to generating competence. The result was an abrupt, abrupt psychological shift from catastrophism to optimism and from despair to self-confidence. This new mood initiated the first wave of globalization, its so-called golden age, in which international trade and finance expanded rapidly. Eventually, however, this optimism gave way to, com gave way to complacency, then doubts about the benefits of globalization and increasing disillusion among those left behind, notably European farmers. The upswing came to an end with World War I. That conflict prompted a massive international rebuilding effort that faltered bloodily with the rise of fascism in the 1930s and the event of World War II. He lays it out pretty pretty detailed, and I apologize for mispronouncing those words. I, this is not my area. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was, yeah, I mean, so he's basically saying, take a look at the 1840s. That's, that's a lot like today. But the thing is, are we going to see wholesale revolutions? You know, is are we going to see a China that has a democratic revolution? Are we going to see an America that has an authoritarian revolution? 
uh, is, will China be the beacon of democracy for the world after their revolution? And will, will we be the state that's governed by a dictator? I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, crises shake things up. That's right. Um, right. One thing that's, that's certain is change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, it's difficult to imagine a world in which the Chinese people bring about democratic revolution. But it was also difficult to imagine a world where um, the Capitol gets breached and people rub poop all over the walls and try to kill the Speaker of the House because they lost an election. It was also hard to, to imagine that these these colonists coming to this new world, barely living, and some of them didn't live, that they would rise to be one of the most powerful nations in the world. Mm-hmm. Anything can happen. And uh, that's why people... Uh, are a, an ingredient of change, and they're very and they they will surprise you. People will surprise you. So, um, do we have anything to say about this? I mean, he sort of set the table of 1840s, you know, the rapid rate of industrialization, but there needed to be improvements made in civil society and balance of payments and international monetary flows, and so you know, Britain they had to replace the patronage network with actually qualified civil servants, you know, that's right. So, well, one thing, one thing I took from this, this section is, uh, which I appreciate how much history was identified and linked that history is not just isolated stories. It's all interconnected mm-hmm. and it all leads to results it's never going to be stagnant. It's always going to be moving and changing. And everything is connected. And so when things happen, you can say, okay, well, this happened. Yeah, but that one event uh, will spawn all these other events. And it's a, it's a whole wave of movement uh, that, that he was identifying historically. Yeah, it's fascinating because so he, he talks about the potato famine. And famines are man-made, and the guy, the Irish quote, the never a democ or palatier or whatever, uh, the words that you had trouble saying. I think those are types of Irish bread, who knows, or potatoes. Um, but it's like the lack of those things never kept my belly empty as much as uh, official, red tape and stationery and officials that are sort of messing things up. And he says there's been research done that famines are caused by managerial incompetence not just drought and flood, especially in an interconnected world. Um, but he starts with that. He starts with the potato famine. And then he says, that happens. That's a crisis. Napoleon declares himself dictator, but through his authoritarianism, he shows that he has competence of government. Then he goes into the United States, the Civil War. He goes to Japan, the Meiji Restoration. These countries realign themselves, and then that sort of sparked off a golden age of globalization that ends, I don't know, 50 years later, 60 years later with World War One, Right. And then World War One brings back, well, let's see, what does he say at the very end? Oh, yeah, the massive international rebuilding effort that faltered with the rise of fascism and World War Two. That's what he says. So should we take that sort of history and dive into the next part? Yeah, shock to the system, yeah. A shock to the system. 
The makers of the post-war settlement in 1945 had learned a great deal from the mistakes of the last century. They created an extensive framework of international institutions, but left substantial economic control in the hands of national authorities. As a result, the end of World War II did not immediately unleash waves of capital mobility like those that had characterized the 19th century. Nearly three decades later, however, the dilemmas raised by shortages and scarcity that had led to earlier versions of integration finally returned setting the stage for the current era of globalization. In the 1970s, after two large oil price hikes, the industrialized world saw its way of life threatened. Oil prices had been stable in the 1960s, but a surge in demand taught producers that they could exploit control over the world's most important commodity. Adding to the crunch, the first oil shock in 1973-74 was accompanied by a 30% rise in wheat prices after the Soviet Union experienced poor harvests and bought up U.S. grain to compensate. Shortages reappeared. Some oil-importing countries imposed car-free days as a way of rationing gasoline consumption. As states spent more on oil, grain, and other commodities, they found their balance of payments squeezed. Unable to afford vital goods from abroad, governments had to make some hard choices. Many floundered as they tried to ration scarce goods, mandating who could drive cars, when, or struggling over whether they should pay nurses more than teachers, police, officers, or civil servants. The immediate and instinctual response to scarcity was protectionism. In the United Kingdom, where balance of payments problems appeared earlier than elsewhere, the government tried a domestic purchasing campaign, supported by all the major political parties. Leaders were encouraged to wear stickers and badges with the Union Jack and the message, I'm backing Britain. The press magnate Robert Maxwell distributed t-shirts with a similar slogan, but it turned out that they were made in Portugal. In the mid-1970s, after the first oil shock, the government briefly flirted with what the Labor Party's left flank called a siege economy, including extensive import restrictions. In the United States, there was acute anxiety about Japanese competition, and in 1981, Washington pressured Tokyo to sign an agreement that limited Japanese car exports. The move backfired, however, because of the new restrictions. Japanese producers merely shifted their focus away from cheap, fuel-efficient cars and toward luxury vehicles. Despite these gestures at economic nationalism, the oil shock, paradoxically at first, created more globalization. In conjunction with price increases, a financial revolution driven by the emergence of large international banks transferred huge surpluses accumulated by oil producers into lendable funds. The new availability of money made resources easily accessible for governments all over the world that wanted to push development and growth. International demand thus surged. In the United Kingdom... Labor's siege economy looked like it would cut off access to markets and prosperity. Thus, crises in the 1970s led to the same realization as in the 1840s. Openness produced resilience, and financing needed to be available for trade to expand. The eventual impact was obvious. Trade in goods and services, which in 1970 had amounted to 12.1% of global GDP, increased to 18.2% by 1980. The cycle swung back to globalization once again. Protectionism in the 1970s also triggered a discussion of whether governments were handling the crisis competently. At first, the debate was personalized and highly caricatured. In the United States, it centered on Richard Nixon's crookery, Gerald Ford's supposed inability to chew gum and walk, or Jimmy Carter's micromanagement. In the United Kingdom, commenters, commentators focused on the detached bachelor existence of Prime Minister Edward Heath, and then on allegations of cronyism against his successor, Harold Wilson. 
France went into the oil shock under the very sick President Georges Pompidou, who died of cancer in 1974. In West Germany, the revelation that Chancellor Willy Brandt's closest assistant was an East German spy undermined the country's reputation for competence. His successor, Helmut Schmidt, believed that Germany was returning to the chaos of the interwar Weimar Republic. The many examples of personal incompetent and rich industrial democracies generated the thesis that such countries had become ungovernable. The political theorist Jean-Francois Revel concluded that democracies were perishing and that the Soviet Union was winning the Cold War. Autocracies such as Chile under Augusto Pinochet and Iran under Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi appeared better suited to handle modern global challenges. The autocrats lectured others about their superiority. In reality, however, they were bloody, corrupt, and in many cases, spectacularly unsuccessful. The real insight of the debate over administrative effectiveness was that governments could overstretch themselves by taking on too many tasks. That realism, realization inspired a key tenet of what is later widely derided as neoliberalism, the belief that if governments took on micro-decisions such as determining wage and price levels, a central part of Nixon and the British government's bid to contain inflation, they risked their legitimacy and reputation for competence. Official decisions would appear both arbitrary and unenforceable because powerful groups would quickly make sure that new settlements favored their interests. There is a lot in that section. Wow, yeah. By the way, congratulations pronouncing those names. You're much better than I am. <laughs> I, think I've seen, very... I think I've seen a lot of those names before. Yeah, very good. Um, that was fascinating. That was very fascinating. So he went from 1940s to 1980s. And I think that part of that, it was trying to reassure people that, you know, you have President Xi and uh, Vladimir Putin. You have these uh, authoritarians. And you look at the Chinese model, you know, in Wuhan, they're partying, they're celebrating. Things are basically back to normal. And that's what can happen when you do a strict lockdown. Uh when you uh, take draconian authoritarian measures and make sure that you do everything that's necessary and you force compliance of the people. You know, their compliance wasn't optional. Their compliance was mandatory. For And you say, wow, does China have a better methodology of solving these problems? And it's like, well, the things that you can see, people were saying the same things about Chile or Iran in the 70s. Look at these authoritarian governments. They have everything under control, and we're sort of spiraling. And it's like, yes, but behind the scenes, I don't think that you can repress freedoms and not expect for, what did, what did they say? Uh, Bloody, corrupt, in many cases, spectacularly unsuccessful. There you go. I think that, that there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. So I got a question, David. Uh -huh. I got a question about this. Um I, I don't know, but my question to you, because you know more about this than I do, is that it sounds like you have an authoritarian government and then you have an open open society like we are in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so people can have the freedom to start businesses and do what they want. And then in an authoritarian government, a strict authoritarian, you know, the, the, the government pretty much controls things. Well, they're saying when you have this this crisis, he's arguing in many cases the authoritarian government deals with it much better uh, than, say, say, a democracy or a republic. But then a republic can grow faster than an authoritarian. So uh, 
it's not like one or the other. It's not like it's not like oh, well then one of these is the solution for all situations. Mm-hmm. Once one's a better solution when you have a crisis, the other is a better solution when you don't have a crisis. Or do you take the best of both and you say, well, maybe in when you don't have a crisis, the United States in an open government and uh, in a, in a democracy. They have the freedom to build and build and build and build. But when a crisis happens, they also need to have the flexibility to have more control to make sure that as a group, they can they can ward off the the negative effects of any type of, say, a pandemic or some crisis or even a world war. Because I know in World War Two, the United States, my parents went through that. They came the, the the United States came together. They had one mind. I mean, it was even tighter from my understanding, from my parents were saying, the United States was even tighter than, than a democracy. Everyone had one mind and they were all going after one direction. And so and so it's that was one of the reasons why why uh, we were successful. So it's like both both have value, but both also have weaknesses. Can you learn from each other uh, so that let's say our democracy we can learn when we have a crisis to have more control. I guess, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'm thinking when I look at this, I say, well, why were these countries more successful? And then why are they, why is the United States more successful? And what are the conditions that make it successful? Mm-hmm. And can we learn, can we learn from that? Yeah. And I think a lot of it is messaging. It's, um, China, I'm sure they, deflated their case counts and their death counts you know i for a fact people died of covid19 and that wasn't included in their toll and they say oh look we only had fifteen thousand deaths and you've had half a million it's like yeah not sure that you only had fifteen thousand you know because it would look yeah. bad so that's right the numbers if you you know because that's what people they'll post the numbers look at the u.s's numbers are the worst and uh, yes we did a very poor job of complying with the mandates that would have saved lives because people thought, you know what? You know what's more important than the life of my grandmother? Me juking out a Walmart greeter so I can go shopping without a mask on. That's that's my right. And that doesn't seem smart, but that's not, you know, where they would be at in China. They would you know, they get sent to jail <laughs> for trying to do something like that. So yes, in some cases the the system that they have set up there is better suited to handle this. But in other cases, it's just an issue of messaging, like with Pinochet and the Shah in Iran, to say, oh, wow, they're doing great. Look at how great they say they're doing. When behind the scenes, if you deny freedom to a bunch of people, if you allow them, don't allow them to speak their minds, if you lie about the the toll that a disease has taken just to keep your numbers low, that doesn't really serve your people and it doesn't serve the world. You know, these liberal democracies that are saying this is what we tried this didn't work like the european model of vaccine administration the eu they did much worse than the uk and the us now they did better on certain things than the uk and the us did but their plan to get everyone vaccinated it wasn't as good as ours and so it's like they can learn from us the next time this happens and we can learn from them on the things that they succeeded on so I do believe that this sort of cooperation, 
is more beneficial in countries that are open societies where best practices can be shared as opposed to societies where you'll sort of limit the information about what you're doing because you don't want people to know the truth. You'll say everything's right. great, but you limit the information that proves otherwise. Yeah, and if you if you limit the information and you lie to people, you don't really lead them, you you use them, right? Mm -hmm. But but yeah, but the way you're describing that is exactly the kind of things he was saying. Uh, but but my thinking is that that's true. How to respond to this? But I'm backing up and say, well, the actions, the best practices that have to be exercised to respond to this effectively. Mm -hmm. and different people will do that, uh, it came from their system of government. Mm -hmm. And so if your system of government is not set up to do that well, maybe you don't change the government, you change the ability to have that type of response. Like let's let's an authoritarian government can respond faster because they have control, but the United States, we don't have that much the same the same control. But maybe we don't want to have the same kind of government. We won't want to be able to respond uh, uh, appropriately and have the results the same, mm -hmm. but not necessarily from the same source of government. See what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we can learn from make ourselves more resilient, more more agile, uh, pulling from supply chain. Mm -hmm. And also, oh, I also noticed he mentioned commodities. How, how when you have a very, very thin uh, risk of, of, of to manage your commodities, and that's just disrupted a little bit, well, cutting off your supply chain of your commodities will wreak havoc and also a lot of problems in your, in your society. Yeah. And that'll filter right up to your government. And so uh, one way is to strengthen supply chains. And strengthen uh, your your connection, the network, the global network connection of commodities, so that the the countries depend on one another with commodities, and not just one country versus another, not one powerful country, but all the countries depend on each other. Kind of like, <laughs> kind of like blockchain. Yeah, <laughs> I, it reminds me of like commodities, like you say, when you depend on you know, raw materials to, to run your world, you know, the absence of those materials is very shocking. It's, I forget what book it is. Maybe it's a tale of two cities, but it's, I forget, but it says, you know, revolutions, they're not about ideas, you know, revolutions, they don't get born in the mind. They get born in the belly. Like if your people are starving, they're going to take up arms against you because it's your fault. And like, like they're saying with the famine. And so, I mean, yeah, wheat prices, but oil also, you know, the freedom of transportation, the um, heavy industry that's relying on crude oil, you know, you, that starts to become prohibitively expensive. It's like, yeah, it's tougher to get from place to place, but you're going to lose a lot of jobs because you can't transport goods from one place to another. You know, it's like, so you lose your livelihood and then, you know, so it's a domino effect. It's not just the belly like it was in the 1700s. It's this whole system that we, we need all these raw materials. We need all these commodities to, to sustain our life. And any disruption to anyone could sort of upset the balance of the system. It's a, it's a very, very good point. 
how revolutions really don't start with principles. They start with your belly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's extremely true. So how can you create a revolution in the country? Start cutting off their supply chain and the people be people want will want change because mm-hmm. this is not sustainable. It's not working. We're dying. And so you're, you're going to create change. Very interesting. Yeah. But again, history is so fascinating. And I think that's why uh, this article is so compelling, because he goes back into history mm-hmm. and lays the foundation uh, for what's happening. So it's a historical perspective of of the uh, globalization, but also the the political aspects, the historical aspects, the social aspects. Yeah. And history connects everything. I also like, so I was talking about Trump and, you know, the 2008 financial crisis caused us sort of to pull back into autarky and sort of favor authoritarianism and that. But he has made a very compelling case without once mentioning Trump. It's not about Trump. He says, look at the leaders, the U.S. leaders in the 70s when we had these big oil shocks. You know, Nixon was a crook. Gerald Ford was incompetent. Uh, Jimmy Carter was a micromanager. Uh, the, whatever leader there is, there'll be criticism of that specific leader. But I think it's also dangerous to overestimate the effect a leader has on the 7 billion people on this globe that are trading um, one single, you know, even if you are the president of the most powerful country in the world, I think you have less influence over globalization than people might think, you know? So I think you, that... You, you can affect it, you can't direct it. Yes, and I think that uh, when it comes to blame and credit, you should be very slow to give out either when it comes to a, a head of state. I agree. There you go. Well said. Um, back to the article. I think we have two more sections. Okay. Inflation Nation. Oh, is this my turn? Sure. Inflation Nation. The shortages of the 1840s and the 1970s both seem to have an apparent cure. Inflation. Inflation can help accommodate shocks, often painlessly, because people have more cash or bank credit. Monetary abundance generates the impression that they can have everything they want. Only gradually do consumers realize that prices are rising and that their money buys less. In the 1850s, inflation may have been partially unintended. It was largely the result of the 1849 California gold rush, which vastly increased the world's gold stock. Price increases were also driven by financial innovation, primarily Europe's adoption of the new types of banking that drove money creation, such as the so-called uh, credits mobilers, mobiliers, which develop industrial lending in China and France, sorry, which develop industrial lending in France and Central Europe. By giving people apparently greater wealth, this increase in the supply of money and the resulting mild inflation helped governments appear more competent and made businesses more consumers and consumers more competent. It prompted a genuine global surge in production which generated greater prosperity and security. After 1971, when Nixon finally severed the link between the dollar and gold, monetary policy was no longer constrained by a metallic standard. In times of crisis, governments could now print more money to drive growth. 
In many countries, the immediate response to oil price increases was therefore to accommodate the shock through expansive fiscal and monetary stimulus. People could still go on buying. That reaction spurred inflation, which by 1974 had risen to 11% in the United States and beyond, that in some other countries in 1975, the United Kingdom's inflation rate reached 24%. Although inflation initially seemed to be the solution to the scarcity problem, it soon appeared in diagnoses of government incompetence. The economist Arthur Oaken developed a popular misery index by simply adding inflation and unemployment. The metric became an important political weapon. The Democratic presidential challenger George McGovern used it against Nixon in 1972. Carter used it against Ford in 1976. And Ronald Reagan used it against Carter in 1980. High inflation at first superficially stabilizes societies, but over time it becomes a threat. Inflation often pushes interest groups internationally, produce, producer cartels such as OPEC, and domestically labor unions to mobilize, organize, and lobby in the hope of acquiring a greater share of the monetary and fiscal resources. Depending on the extent of that mobilization, it can pull societies apart as unions leapfrog each other with aggressive wage demands and inflation erodes the pay and pensions of the non-unionized and the retired. By demonstrating that governments are vulnerable to organized pressure, inflation is thus a destabilizing force in the long term. Indeed, analysts have argued that it was at least in part generalized international inflation in the 1960s that pushed oil producers to organize, leading to the price hikes of the 1970s. Monetary ex experiments of this sort created demands for new order ordering frameworks. After the surge in economic growth of the mid 19th century, the world internationalized the gold standard to create a common framework for international payments. Although policymakers went a different route after the inflation and liberalization of the 1970s, they were also looking for a return to stability. To end the monetary disorder, central banks targeted a low inflation rate and governments engaged in new patterns of cooperation abroad, abroad creating the G5 and then the G7 and the G20 as forums for discussing collective responses to global economic challenges. The quest for stability was also aided by the steady march of globalization. Greater global integration lowered production costs and thus helped correct the inflation surge that initially accompanied the shortage economy. Inflation, which first fueled globalization in the 1850s, was, by the end of the 20th century, eventually tamed by it. It was shorter, but it was interesting. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I found it. Inflation, you know, we don't really think about it. And I don't, uh, this was the part that I'm saying, I'm not an economic expert on the historical ramifications of inflation. I got to take this guy's word for it, I suppose. I know you had a neighbor who loved to read Investor's Business Daily. Mm -hmm. And during the Obama era, well, at the end of the Bush era, 
with TARP-1, the Toxic Asset Relief Program, and then, of course, Obama passed TARP-2, the Toxic Asset Relief Program, TARP-2, and they injected uh, $1.4 trillion into the economy, so less than we've done with our two coronavirus stimuluses. He was convinced there's going to be runaway inflation. You can't have that much government spending. The inflation is going to be runaway, and we didn't see any of that. And... I also read Paul Krugman, we read him yesterday, and he says, it's interesting, but, you know, traditional rules of thumb, like if your national debt is larger than your GDP, and I had a, your neighbor also would always say this, the country goes down the tube. Uh, So your debt is larger than the amount of money you make in a year, basically, as a nation. And Krugman says, look at Japan. Their debt is 110, 115% of their GDP, and the interest rates there are 1%. Or less. There's no inflation <laughs> there, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. th- so, you know, those traditional rules of thumbs, they don't play. But I have a hard time wrapping my head around, you know, as inflation takes hold, which it hasn't, you know, even with all of this government spending for uh, coronavirus relief, we haven't seen big shocks of inflation in the euro or the, the dollar. Uh, the Japanese yen, we haven't seen it. And and so I'm wondering, will it happen? And if it does, will it spur more uh, governmental, I mean, union organization and uh, international organization organization? Like he says, that's the historical precedent. And there is always a worry when you pump trillions of dollars into a system that it's going to cause inflation. But we just have not seen that yet. That's... That's my point, and I don't know where the tipping point is because people have told me my whole life the tipping point is here, and then the tipping point comes, and I haven't seen inflation in my adult life. And, do, and it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. So so you can see why I'm a little bit uh, – I don't really understand because I have been taught you know, in business school and in, in studying political science, this X will lead to Y. X is this and Y is inflation. And then X happens, those constraints are satisfied, and I don't see the inflation. But if I were your age or, you know, your neighbor who believed in all this stuff and I lived through the stagflation of the 70s and early 80s, I would be afraid of it. Right. So, so it's it's fascinating from a personal perspective how you don't appreciate how something like inflation plays into politics when you've never experienced it yourself. Well, when you said X produces Y, Mm -hmm. that's very, that's very true. And, and that's probably a true statement. X does produce Y, but then when you begin saying there's X, but Y doesn't happen, does that mean that that relationship doesn't exist? No, it still exists. But it doesn't always happen. And and to me, <laughs> here we go again, David, back to the philosopher, great philosopher of the 20th century, Yogi Berra. Mm-hmm. In theory, what do you say? In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice and practice there is. Yeah. And I think that's there. There it is again in politics and in, in fiscal uh, in politics in the inflation in globalization. It's still true. Yeah. Because because the world is so complex 
reality and practice practices reality. Reality is so complex and theory is just an approximation of reality such that the approximation is done in such a way that we can understand parts of reality. But approximation and theory is not reality. Mm -hmm. And so when the conditions are right, the theory will be will will result in practice. But when all the conditions are not there, it will not result in practice because practice is, is, is reality mm -hmm. and theory is not necessarily reality. Yeah. So that's more philosophical. But I think I think um, uh, the inflation thing here is is along those lines. And I says, yeah, infl inflation can have a short term effect and it does and it will. But that doesn't mean it'll keep doing going that way. So what happens in the short term doesn't mean it's going to keep going long term. That's true. And I did see an article yesterday while I was surfing the net about how the inflation has begun. Procter and Gamble announced an eleven percent increase in the prices of their goods across the board or whatever. And they're a huge consumer goods. So they've determined you know, that's just the pricing of one company. So that's not a price index of all goods across all, but it's a large consumer goods company, and they're saying we need to start making people pay more for this. And if you're scared of inflation, you'll see it wherever it happens. And I might learn a thing or two about inflation if we have another round of it. But, you know, in my life, it hasn't been a huge deal. So, and that's because I lived in America. I'm sure if you lived in Venezuela, where People are struggling. They were racing five, ten years ago, five years ago, to buy Bitcoin because your money was worth half as much as it was at the end of the week as it was at the beginning of the week because of inflation. That's, That's right. if you live through that, it's like holy crap, this is a problem. But since I've never lived through it, it's difficult to conceptualize a world in which the hundred dollars I have in my pocket is worth fifty by the end of the week in terms of raw purchasing power because I've never lived through anything like that. And I think it's important when you talk about these issues, I don't know, I think it's important because I'm saying it, to <laughs> acknowledge where you don't know. You don't have any personal experience. So, you know, for your, your neighbor, he lived through that. I'm sure that he probably lost money or he didn't have the same purchasing because he's very, you know, concerned with those things. Didn't have the same purchasing power in the late 70s as he would have at that stage in his career because of inflation. And he was salty about it. He was salty about it 30 years later. He's salty about it 40 years later. And he's saying, no, this Obama, he's going to cause all this inflation. And it's a legitimate concern for him because he lived through a period of inflation in his life. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And for me... Yes. But I think back in the 60s, I remember when I was growing up, that that's why, oh, in the 50s, after World War II, uh, we had surges of inflation, but that's why it just drove people to take their money invested in property. Mm -hmm. And so everyone had a house. And so you buy your property. And then, then you have the loan uh, banks come in and give these loans, uh, which was backed by the government. And so it just went on and on and on. And so it did it did have a benefit to society because everyone had a home, which is a great uh, uh, benefit to the society. Mm -hmm. But there were consequences to it. But the 60s are very, very different than the 2020s. Yes. And so that we may see a huge round of inflation coming up, and I'll learn firsthand what that feels like. Mm -hmm. But until we do, I'm going to profess my ignorance. Um, shall we finish the article? Yes. 
Okay, past as prologue. Today, the COVID-19 pandemic has produced a deep economic crisis, but it is different from many past ones. The shock is not a demand-driven downturn like the Great Depression or the 2008 recession. Although lockdowns have interrupted supply and caused unemployment to soar, there is no overall shortage of demand. Large rescue and stimulus packages in rich countries have generated a financial buffer, and savings have shot up as people spend less. The best estimate is that in 2020, the United States piled up $1.6 trillion in excess savings, equivalent to 7% of GDP. People are waiting to unleash their pent-up purchasing power. That was a very alliterative sentence. People are waiting to unleash their pent-up purchasing power. On top of that, finance ministers <laughs> and... Uh, international institutions are listening to U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's demand that the time to go big is now when it comes to fiscal relief. Yet the current crisis does share key characteristics with the crises of 1840s and the 1870s. The world of scarcity, for one thing, is already here. The pandemic has led to shortages of medical supplies, such as face masks and glass vials for vaccine storage. Food prices have soared to their highest level since 2014, the result of a combination of dry weather and South America that has hurt wheat and soybean crops and pandemic-induced shipping disruptions. In the initial stages of the pandemic, laptops became scarce as employees scrambled to update their work-from-home setups. There is also a worldwide chip shortage as the demand for microprocessors in medical, managerial, and leisure use has increased. Freight rates between China and Europe quadrupled at points in 2020. Steel, too, is in short supply. Much as the crises in the 1840s and the 1970s did, the pandemic has also raised questions of government competence. At first, China seemed to be able to deal with the crisis better than its Western competitors. Its cover-up of the severity of the pandemic notwithstanding, which prompted many observers to question whether democracies were capable of swift, effective action. Donald Trump's presidency collapsed because of his chaotic handling of the crisis. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson faced a revolt among conservative members of parliament because of his complex, contradictory, and constantly shifting lockdown rules. The European Commission lost credibility because of its poor management of vaccine purchases. As in the past, citizens personalized the incompetence. Americans debated, for example, how much blame was to put on Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who led part of the response. In the United Kingdom, much of the outrage focused on Dominic Cummings, the prime minister's policy advisor who had violated the country's lockdown rules. For other observers, the unifying theme behind the mismanagement was populism. With Trump, Johnson, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, Indian President Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte all botching the response. But even in countries where the crisis had been handled relatively well, well, there have been surges of protests against the way governments have reacted to the pandemic. In Germany, alternative thinkers, protesting new lockdown measures, attacked the parliament building in August 2020. Even in Japan, where there is a long tradition of the use of face masks as a hygiene measure, a movement calling itself Popular Sovereignty Party organized cluster protests against mask wearing. Given these challenges, it's easy to assume that governments and citizens alike would prioritize nationalization, cultivating supposedly resilient domestic supply chains to hedge against the next crisis. But that's unlikely to happen. Instead, people are desperately looking for new leadership and new visions. As was true during previous supply shocks, leaders can make a good case for the importance of foreign models. Some countries have done much better than others in dealing with the health and economic consequences of COVID-19. Although some of these countries are small or relatively isolated, by most metrics, the country with the most competent response was the biggest, China. That is not without 
without irony. To put it mildly, the country responsible for unleashing the virus has also been a major beneficiary, with some states now looking to Beijing for leadership. But instead of condemning China's response or demanding reparations for the pandemic's costs, other countries should consider how to use Beijing's example, just as the United Kingdom in the 1850s realized that it could learn from foreign producers. Hmm. What do you think of that? Wow. wow. That's very interesting. I, I don't know what to think of it. I think he's basically saying... Um, You can attribute causes, populism, incompetence, you know, focus on leaders. But I think that the, the message that I'm taking from it, which may not be the right message, is look at who's done well. You know, look at who's done poorly. Don't do the things that cause you to do poorly and, and do the things that are good. You know, take a hodgepodge of the U.S. vaccine rollout, the EU's programs for this, you know, the Chinese programs for this, and and sort of just learn best practices by observing what went well and what went poorly in other places. Yeah, I uh, look at that and go, wow, you know, what what is he saying here? It seems to me like he's saying no one person has the answer. No. We need, everybody needs to learn from each other. It's a collective type type best practices thing. You don't Say, oh, there. Let's do what they do. Let's do what they do. Let's do what they do. No, you can't do that. It's say, let's just all come together and share, so that we have something that no one is doing mm -hmm. uh, totally. Uh, yeah, it's very. Uh, it seems that seems to me that's what he's saying. Uh, but at the very end, he says, you know, like uh, just as Yannick came in the 1850s, realized that it could learn from foreign producers. They keep saying we learn from each other, learn from each other, learn from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, even China, uh, learn what China's doing, learn what, learn what uh, all across the globe. So the globalization, uh, he's saying, is not a bad. It can be a bad thing, it can be a good thing, but one thing we should do in globalization is learn from each other. Yeah, because because some things will work in certain areas of the world that don't work in others. Some things will work in some societies and countries and political structures that don't in others. But that doesn't mean you can't learn from them. So yeah. Is, is that is that what you got from it? That's what I got from it. And that was, I mean, it's a simple thing, but should we finish off the article and then sort of wrap mm -hmm. this up? Yeah, let's finish it. No surprises. Familiar historical force, forces will drive post-pandemic re-globalization. Re in a world facing enormous challenges, not just the pandemic, but also climate change, solutions are global public goods. In 1945, the architects of the post-war order believed that peace and prosperity were indivisible and could not be the property of one nation. Now, health and happiness are the same. Both are impossible for individual states or regions to enjoy alone. Technology is also transforming a, globaliz a globalizing planet as it did in the 1840s and the 1970s. In the mid-19th century, the drivers were the steamship, the undersea cable, and the railroad. In the last quarter of the 20th century, it was computing power. The first widely available personal computers appeared in the early 1980s. Today, data occupies the same position. 
linking the world and offering solutions to major problems, including government incompetence. New types of information might help leaders attack some of the inequalities and injustices highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic. More automation might mean that machines can take on some of the repetitive and dangerous tasks performed by low paid essential workers. Telemedicine and data-driven public health can trigger faster and more precisely targeted pharmaceutical or medical interventions. As in past crises, cri crises there is also an immediate and powerful global demand for cheap and reliable products. In the mid 19th century, it was foodstuffs. In the 1970s, it was oil and commodities. In the 2020s, it is medical supplies, data chips, and rare earth met metals. To be resilient to new shocks, these commodities need to be produced and traded internationally by a multiplicity of suppliers. Governments and businesses also need to continuously innovate as it did in the 1840s, as it did in the as it did in the 1840s, isolationism today would mean cutting off opportunities to learn from different experiments. No single country or its particular culture of science and innovation was responsible for the development of the effective COVID-19 vaccine, one of the miracles of 2020. Success was the product of intense international collaboration. This story of innovation also applies to government competence. No state can succeed alone. Even if one particular decision is by chance spectacularly successful, say Germany's impressive testing record or the United Kingdom's fast vaccine rollout, it is usually difficult to repeat that success in other policy areas. Policymakers may stride confidently past their first victory, only to slip on a banana peel. The United States in particular may find this a hard pill to swallow. Americans have long been attached to the idea of their country's superiority, akin to the belief held by the British in the mid 19th century. COVID-19, like the 1840s famine and the 1970s oil shock, presents both a crisis and a learning opportunity. The United States has coasted on the idea that the world needs the English language and the US dollar. Neither of those assumptions can hold forever. Just as automatic translation technology is increasing, uh, increasing linguistic accessibility, a different currency could become a new international standard. The dollar is not an adequate insurance policy or a viable basis for Washington to reject need for change. The challenge of the new upswing in the cycle of globalization will be to find ways to learn and adapt, increasing the effectiveness of government and business without compromising fundamental values. As in the 1840s and the 1970s, financial and monetary innovation or the, to or the tonic of inflation will drive transformational change. Memories of crisis will push countries and governments to adapt in 2021 and beyond, just as they have before. There we go. Yeah, he, he pretty much summed up what we were saying. Mm-hmm. So, we need now, each other. Yeah. We need to learn from each other. So now that we've read the article, what do you take away from it? Well, personally, which we can talk about this after we close off, uh, I'm teaching supply chain management mm -hmm. uh, next month. 
uh, at the university, I'm thinking, wow, you know, I, I really should look a little bit deeper into what he's saying about what is learned by nations and how they collaborate with the supply chain. So I, I talk about the tech, the technical aspects of the supply chain, mm-hmm. but maybe I need to back up and look more about this, the political aspects of the supply chain. I, I he really he attacked that pretty strong. But also, you know, he's a he doesn't really understand. He's not a supply chain guy like you. So when he says, um, yeah, where do you say it? Uh, do I have it pulled up? Yeah, I do. In the 2020s, it is medical supplies, data chips, and rare earth metals. Yeah. Okay. Medical supplies and data chips I can buy. You build new foundries, you're able to have an appropriate number of chips being made. Medical supplies, you manufacture them wherever they need to be and make sure there's adequate supply. The one thing is rare earth minerals are by definition rare. And if they only exist in one or two countries in this world, if there's only so many neodymium mines, and they might be in China and Mongolia, and it's like, well, we need to get these from a multiplicity of sources. And it's like, well, that would be nice, but they're only in China and Mongolia. Uh, There's more constraints on a rare earth mineral than there are on finished goods like medical supplies or, or semiconductors. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. You're right. But I think what he was doing was giving examples of how commodities uh, are essential, are critical, and how they can really impact uh, globalization. The next sentence, he says, to be resilient to new shocks, Mm -hmm. to be resilient to new shocks, these commodities need to be produced and traded internationally by a multiplicity of suppliers. Well, that's getting right into the into supply chain design, uh, and and resilient supply chains uh, is is really he's using the term and shocks loosely. Mm-hmm. Usually, resilience resilience and agile supply chains it really applies to changing uh, uh, market uh, moves. Yes, okay. well, we we discussed the semiconductor shortage, and it's the low end chips that are halting production of. A trillion dollars worth of goods. You know, it's not the ones that are in your cell phone. It's not the ones that are in your laptop. It's it's the display driver chips that are one dollar that are manufactured in Taiwan. They can't make them fast enough. You know. Well, resiliency uh, in supply chains means when the supply chain is disrupted, how does it bring it back? Mm-hmm. But shocks refer to uh, responsive supply chains or uh, uh, agile supply chains that can take a shock and respond very quickly to it. And so one is coming back, the other is, is moving with it. So, so the, the supply, to me, I think commodities are so essential to not only to, the, uh, to a nation, it's also for the globalization, but also understanding the difference between resiliency and, and responsiveness is critical to create a supply chain that can move into the 21st century or in the 2020s and 2030s. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone has to start thinking of the, the commodity supply chains. And it can't be nationalized. It has to be internationalized. But That's, that's my thesis. Maybe I should write an article. Maybe you we should. should write an article, David. We I, should write an article, David. Here's my issue. Uh, 
I just I, I think I'm lost in the weeds. So you're thinking of this from a supply chain management perspective. That's and it, true. it shouldn't be nationalized. I'm thinking there are certain rare earth minerals where the only mines in the world are in China. Yes. And they're vital components to goods, technological goods that are necessary. Well, it, it shouldn't be nationalized. But if China controls 100% of the world's supply, do you think that they'll say, you know what we need to do? We need to get European and American firms out here to start their own mines. So that it's not, you know, they're going to dominate that because they have, they have their ace in the hole. So yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I, but I think that I'm thinking too practical. Like you're saying, well, if if there is a rare earth mineral that the only mines are in China, and we don't know if they exist anywhere else in the world, we might need to develop production mechanisms that circumvent the use of that specific commodity. Exactly. And that's being not resilient. That's being agile and responsive yes. to different different changes. And those are shocks. Uh, now, when, when supply, when what you're explaining would be resiliently resilient to, to, a, to a pandemic or where the supply chain totally goes away, mm -hmm. you have to bring it back, you know. And, and the different universities, University of Minnesota, they do a lot of really good work uh, in the supply chain area too. And and but the CU Denver, uh, they have a commodity center, and uh, we we look at uh, the commodity supply chain as far as the commodities are concerned. Mm -hmm. But uh, other universities in the United States, in Europe, uh, in France, all over the world, again, uh, uh, this analysis of the future going forward. Uh, the universities to be part of the, part of the dialogue, mm -hmm. and to say, look, there's a lot lot more to this, and and this uh, this author Harold James, he is a professor of history and international affairs at Princeton, and so they need to chime in and they need to be part of uh, the dialogue. Yeah. So I I, I kudos to to uh, to Dr. James. Uh, this these kinds of articles need to be written. Yeah. And and also and also kudos to the. Uh, uh, to foreign affairs for publishing these. These are not just interesting articles. These are in, crucial articles, mm -hmm. important articles to be to be written, to be read, and always listen to what people are saying. Try to understand what they're saying. You don't have to believe them, but always listen to what people are saying. Yeah, I think that's probably a good place to leave off, don't you think? I, if you think so, it's fine with me. You want me to close it out? Let's close it out. Let's call this one an episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Sons of Sequoia podcast every Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's 11 Eastern, 8 Pacific. And the Sons of Sequoia say, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Goodbye. Bye.